All right, we are in Colossians chapter 2, um, really a magnificent passage of scripture. Um, it, it has echoes of Ephesians 1 and 2. It has echoes of Romans chapter 6 in this passage. It has a um, um, little bit of First Corinthians, uh, Second Corinthians in here as well. Um, Paul is once again addressing the issue before the Colossians, and that is this phony <coughs> philosophy that is attempting to pull them away from the faith. And once again, Paul is going to exalt Christ as the answer to what they're being faced with. Um, and I think it applies in our day as much as it did in theirs. And I think the answer is the same, that when we understand who Christ is and what he's done, it should guard us from the philosophies that are trying to take us away from him. Um, we're going to read, although we're only going to be studying 8 through 15, um, we're going to read from 6, which is the beginning of this section, all the way down through um, chapter, well, through the rest of the chapter till the end of chapter 2. Um, and then we'll look specifically at those seven verses. So starting in Colossians 2, 6, it says, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food, and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and the worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to the human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh." Um, the passage begins, last week, of course, we looked at what we're supposed to be doing. We're supposed to be um, 
rooted and we're supposed to walk in him as we received him rooted and built up in the faith um, and established overflowing with thanksgiving. And now Paul issues the warning, see to it that no one takes you captive. And he lists for us those things that can take us captive. And they are philosophy and empty deceit, human traditions, the elemental spirits of the world, okay? Um, some Bibles lump together philosophy and empty deceit and actually say empty philosophy. Uh, ours says philosophy and empty deceit. Um, it's, it's unclear whether Paul is attacking all philosophy or whether he is simply talking about philosophies that aren't grounded in Jesus Christ. Um, and philosophy, of course, just means the love of wisdom and was considered to be somewhat noble at that time. And yet philosophers also, uh, if they're not focused on Christ, are trying to understand the world without him and it leads to empty. But we have basically philosophy, or I'm gonna do it this way, we have empty philosophy. Um, these things are what can take us captive. Uh, human traditions and the elemental spirits of the world. Okay. And we're going to talk about those in a minute. In fact, the passage, the reason we kept reading is the passage describes what those are for Colossae. I don't know if that's always what's true, but in Colossians, we, he explains what the elemental spirits and what the human traditions are that are taking them captive. I did want to point out something that it's easy for us to miss. And that is the passage talks out, starts out by saying, see to it, no one takes you captive. Don't let these things take us captive. At the end of our passage in verse 15, it says he, talking about um, Christ, disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Um, and I think if we're not careful, we're gonna miss something from a historical context here. Um, what do you think of, other than Matt, what do you think of when you hear the word triumph? To overcome, to win. Was that? Conquering. Victory. Um, maybe a motorcycle. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, I, I grew up with a triumph spitfire, but triumph means to win, right? So if we have a football game, we triumph. But to the Roman world, a triumph meant something different. A triumph was when a general had conquered and done an amazing, had an amazing victory. Not just won a war, but won a big victory. Over time, it became degraded. But at the beginning, a triumph was we've won a major victory. And the triumph was the uh, celebration that took place in Rome. And you came into Rome and there had to be rules that were set up and there was all sorts of things that happened. But the, the conquering general would come into the city in a chariot with his armies marching behind him. And then guess what came after the armies? The captives and the loot, uh, the captives and the loot. And the captives were usually broken up into those who had been captured um, outside of war. So it might have been children and slaves and women and whoever was being brought in. And then those who were hostile, who had been uh, refused to be captured, 
came next. They were usually in chains. And lastly was usually the king of the conquered territory or the general who had been conquered and he was in chains. And of course, nobody is sitting there watching them and doing nothing. You're making fun of them, right? Throwing things at them, laughing at them, screaming at them. And they were just being humiliated as they went through. And what Paul is saying is, Christ has triumphed over these things. He's triumphed over them. He's triumphed over sin. He triumphed over, and it says that the authorities and the, um, the rulers, which is mentioned up in the first part, that he is the Lord over those, those authorities and rulers. So <clears throat> when Paul says triumph here, these things have already been conquered. These things have already been defeated. Um, they are part of that train that's coming into Rome. And what Paul is saying is, don't let them recapture you. The picture is actually ludicrous, right? That, that the captives at the back could end up recapturing the soldiers in the front. That all of a sudden it's turned around and the soldiers are now captives and the captives are in the place of the soldiers. And that's what Paul is, is saying here. Um, did I do an okay job with the triumph there, Matt? Yeah, well, it's triumph, it's humiliating, but it actually was a ceremony that took place. Uh, by the way, there's another passage that is similar to that um, in 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, excuse me. Um, and I think I wrote this down. Let's see if I did. 2 Corinthians um, chapter 2, I believe. Um, yeah, 2 Corinthians 2, verse 14 says, but, but thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. And there was incense that was burning as they were coming into the city. And then the other place that's interesting, although it's a quote from the Old Testament, but I think it applies here, is in Ephesians. Um, Ephesians chapter... Uh, 4 verse 8 it says therefore it says when he ascended on high he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men and there's an echo of that triumphal procession because one of the things that happened was that the general would then divvy out the booty to his men <laughs> he would give gifts to his soldiers and then the captives were humiliated Okay, so back to Colossians, Paul is saying these things have already been captured. They have no value. Don't let them capture you back. So what are empty philosophies, human traditions, and elemental spirits? Well, in Colossians, it's spelled out for us. So if you go to verse 16, and by the way, this will be talked about next week, so we're not going to spend a lot of time with this. In other words, this will be fleshed out as we get into next week. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in regard to food or drink or regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. So one of the things is um, what you eat, what you drink, um, and the days that you celebrate. Those things are part of this, the empty philosophy. Don't let those things take you in. 
Um, if you go to verse 18, let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism, worship of angels, and going on in detail about visions. So asceticism, oh, I don't think I spelled that right, but that's okay. Worship of angels, um, going on and on about visions. What's asceticism? What does that mean to be an ascetic? means to treat your body harshly, to set up, um, 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 you, you would um, set up a very severe regimen for yourself um, and isolate yourself and pull yourself out. The, the monks would have been ascetics. Um, Martin Luther before would have been an ascetic. Okay. Yeah. Um, then look at verse 20. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, that's the exact same phrase. And by the way, the only two times in Scripture where that's mentioned, elemental spirits. There's one other place where the word element is mentioned. That's in 1 Peter, 2 Peter, where he talks about the elements will melt away um, when Christ returns. But he's not talking about elemental spirits. He's actually talking about the physical stuff the world is made of. It says, let... Um, if you died to the elemental spirit of the world, why, as if, you still, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. One of the most, um, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. A verse that was ripped out of context during Prohibition <laughs> to to um, say that the Bible said that prohibition was right, and yet it's ripped right out of context, because what is it saying here? This isn't to apply to us. Do, do, why are you listening to people who say, do not taste, do not touch, do not handle? Um, and then it says, referring to, all to, the, to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. There's our human traditions. They have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. All of this stuff makes sense apart from Christ. How, how are you going to stop sin in your life? Well, I'm going I'm to set up a series of rules that I can keep, and I'm going to do certain things at certain times, and I'm going to pull myself away so that I can't be tempted anymore. And Paul says it all makes sense, but it's all vain and empty. It doesn't stop the flesh because the flesh requires something more radical, which Paul is going to talk about in this passage. Okay? What are for us, by the way, I, I think when you come down to these, the human traditions, the elemental spirits, when you talk about false religion, my opinion is it always comes back to one of these two. Legalism, okay? Uh, actually, I shouldn't say these two because I can actually think of three. Legalism and then some sort of the mystery religion that there's a higher knowledge that only certain people can, um, uh, uh, can get to. I think that's part of the asceticism. So there's some sort of higher... Uh, knowledge that only certain people can get to as opposed to what's revealed in scripture and there's also license in our day 
um, or we would call it antinomianism, where we say, well, if legalism is, then I can just do whatever I want to whenever I want to. And all of those things lead us astray. Any other empty philosophies or, or human traditions or elemental spirits that we battle with? Because by the way, Colossians had an issue for its time. It may, be not, it may be that that's not what we're dealing with now in that exact form. Rod. Al Mohler has been talking about this transgender stuff that's going on, and he made the statement, I think it was on Friday, he says, where are these people who are saying that transgender is going to make everybody happy, where are they going to be when everybody finds out how empty that really is? Yeah. And I don't know, when you, when you were talking about his comment, that how that these guys who think they're non-gender, transgender, whatever it is, are going to come to a point where that is not going to satisfy. And, and then they're going to realize that, that how tragic it is, and they probably won't have answers to get back yep. to where they need to be. Well, and let's, let's jump off of there, because I think the spirit of our age is if you just leave me alone and let me live my life my way, yeah. I'll be happy. Yeah. Right? Isn't that the spirit of our age? Um, if I have a baby and I want to get rid of it, don't stand in my way. So abortion is good. If I, if I feel like I was born into the wrong body, uh, but we face that too. Just, you know, if the government just stayed out of my life, I'd be happy. Right? I, mean, I, I hate to say it, but in this group, that's probably true for a lot of us. If, if, I, if you just, you know, if we just got rid of all of these stupid government rules and regulations, everybody would be happy. Well, no more happy than if they decide they want to be transgendered and are, are allowed to do it. We have this idea that if we could be masters and captain of our own destiny, and if we could just let get people out of our hair, then, then happiness would follow. And it's a false philosophy because it, it only comes through Jesus Christ. Uh, I would say the materialism that surrounds us. We either believe that if I have certain things, I'll be happy. And I think most of us, as we get older, realize that's probably not true. But we also think, I think for some of us, this is more deep, that if I don't have certain things, I won't be happy, right? I don't need a lot, but I'd better have these things or I won't be happy. And yet, Paul says, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content with much or with little. Why? Because it's only through Christ that we find any sort of satisfaction. And I, I think when, when we talk about the world that we live in, there's a lot of things that we sort of buy into, just not as deeply as the, the people who say, I want my abortion and I want to be able to marry whoever I want to, and I want to be able to go into the women's restroom. We're not dealing with that, but we're dealing with it at the more fundamental level. What's led to that? Let me get Matt over here. One other thought, about, one other thought that I think I see a little bit of is nihilism. Just kind of that idea that you really don't know anything in this life, and you really can never know anything in this life. And really, at its core, I think to the most extreme ones, life becomes very meaningless to them. Yeah. Um, and I'll get back to you in a second, Rod. I, I do think there's a lot of that where we now have a philosophy which says you really can't know anything for certain. Yeah, I mean, um, and it, it, we, whether we 
like it or not, it affects us as well. And you had an entire branch of a church movement, the emergent church, which that was their dominating principle. And believe it or not, you, you know people who are part of that movement where they said, don't try and tell me what the Bible says because you don't know what the Bible says. And, and it was very humble. It was like, you know, I can't really tell you what this says because I'm not 100% sure. So we're going to have to figure it out together. But what it does is it puts human authority then, right? <laughs> the end result of that humility is to bring the Bible down so that we don't use it. And then we say whatever we want. And you get uh, emergent pastors writing books whether or not hell exists because they can't believe that a loving God would have, would have hell. Well, that's because they said, we think the Bible has been misunderstood or misinterpreted. Yeah. Yep. Rod. We talked about how this affects ourselves. Maybe think of a, a, uh, Job chapter 6. Uh, Job was responding and he's saying, if God would just cut me off and leave me alone, I'd be better off than all that I'm going through right now. And, and a lot of times, I think you could, I know I've fallen into that when there's great trial and say, man, God's authorizing all of this. Maybe if I could just get out from underneath God, everything would be a whole lot better, you know? Yeah. But, you know, and that's what Job is saying. So, but yet, he comes back to the fact that, wait a minute, no, it's not the trial, it's the God who brings the trial that I need to serve. Yeah, so. exactly. Darla. But then at the end of it, we also need to be um, established and built up and rooted, and the only way to do that is by being a part of one another and being a part of the kingdom of God and Christ. Yeah. And we don't get to be left alone. Yeah. <laughs> well, we hope God doesn't leave us alone. And I think Job hoped it too, but there was definitely a flavor there. Both all these things. Being rooted, you're rooted in the truth. I mean, the secularism, postmodernism is an attack upon an absolute truth. So we live in, I mean, we worship the idea of evolving truth means there was, never was truth. Yeah. It's an evolving idea of reality. And so we determine what the truth is as we evolve. That's the problem. It goes to everything. So it always comes down to a truth that's outside of ourselves. Very C.S. Lewis in your Christianity. Yeah. Like goodness, we are not the source of goodness. We are not the source of truth. You have to establish that as an absolute and then everything else flows from that. Yeah. So no, I and I agree with you. Yeah, if we yes, and and once you've established that everybody can determine their own truth, then that's where we are, why we are where we are today, and it affects the church as well. Um, let me throw out. We're going to run out of time for the rest of the passage, but maybe David will have to do it next week. Um, uh, there are things that come down to us because of that. Like I said, the emergent church movement was one of them where let's rethink everything that we've ever did, let's throw away, interesting, the traditions that we have. And sometimes the traditions do need to get tossed out if they're holding us back. Um, but more recently, there's been an attack which Paul actually um, deals with here in Colossians 
I started seeing it a few years ago, and now it's filtered down into theological circles. The entire questioning of the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. Um, I don't know if you've seen the phrase, but they will talk about Christ being crucified, and rather than talking about it as we would, as what makes all the difference, the phrase that's being used is that that is cosmic child abuse. That the crucifixion is cosmic child abuse. That God took his son and crushed him for us would be, would be unjust and God being a child abuse abuser. First time I saw it, it was in a secular publication. It was a woman talking about how she could never believe in the God of the Bible. But more recently, this is moving into theological circles. Um, and you might say, yeah, probably some liberal seminary. Actually, Fresno Pacific Seminary, one of their top professors, he's left now a couple of years ago, was a big proponent of this. That there was no substitutionary death of Jesus Christ. And the argument is that if I was to do some horrible crime, let's say I murdered somebody and I went before the judge and he says, you need to pay for that. So we're going to put Adrian Oscom in jail. Everybody would understand that that's a miscarriage of justice. They said, well, God doing this, doing the same thing, but he's doing it to his own son. And um, so they're questioning the doctrine of the atonement. Um, I was reading a very conservative pastor who was on a panel with one of the proponents of this idea and the guy actually asked him what do you get by believing in the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ and the pastor says salvation <laughs> that's what I get from it is salvation because that's where our salvation comes from so I, I think we have to be careful our society is one these things we're not immune from this we may not be facing what the Colossians were facing, but, but the flow of our society is such that if we are not careful, we find ourselves buying into things that are not true. And I, I really think for a long time, and maybe part of the reason the state of the church is what it is, is that we have bought into that philosophy. Leave me alone. Let me do my own thing. Uh, pull your, you know, uh, allow me to live my life the way I want to, and I will be happy as opposed to saying continuously, unless I bow the knee to Jesus Christ, there will be no true peace or satisfaction. And, and it makes it hard for us to say to somebody who doesn't believe in Christ, no, you're never going to find satisfaction through the, the way that you live. Um, so I think even part of our understanding of our political system, don't, don't we kind of have this idea if we just elect the right person, everything will be great? is not true because people are people it's only if the united states turns back to jesus christ that things will be great and this election we're faced with no good choice but in a sense uh, un unless our leadership is committed to jesus christ and moving our nation that direction then the election doesn't really matter satan just keeps moving us in the direction that we're going we've had a lot of ideas that float around i me too all of us that aren't necessarily in line with the principles that, that Jesus Christ has, or that, that Paul lines out for us. Rod? Ran into something in the RG on Friday night. There was a discussion uh, about a, a, 
a topic, and the guy said, well, Joel Holstein <laughs> And I said, well, you need to really examine as to whether that's a biblical thing or not. He says, but look at the size of his church. Look at all the, all the blessing that God's given him. And so their idea that Joel Holstein was correct was based on the size of his following, based on the riches that were there. And so it had nothing to do with what biblical was, but yet that's still the American way. If God, if you're uh, being blessed financially, you're powerful, you're good, you're doing what's right type stuff. And, and so yeah. know, they bought into the affirmation of the large church being the support of his philosophy. Yep. Anyways, I, I, we could probably spend a lot more time on the philosophies, but we deal with this too. And we have to be careful because that's not where we're going to find what it is that we need. Where do we find it? Well, obviously in Jesus Christ. Look at the very, we're not going to get through the passage, sadly, but I think David, if he teaches next week, will be, David Morris will be really excited to take the next part. Verse, verse 9, for in him, well, let's, let's read from the beginning because we pick it up. It says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Why? For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Um, we have in Jesus Christ, this is now the second time it's been stated, all the fullness of the deity is in Jesus Christ. We have been told in Colossians that we have Christ in us who is the hope of glory. In, second, in Colossians 2, right at the beginning, that all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Christ. And now we are being told that it is um, that we have been filled in him. So verse 10, and you have been filled in him <coughs> who is the head of all rule and authority. Um, this doesn't mean that we have everything Christ has, but that everything that we need is fully supplied by Jesus Christ. Everything that we need for life and godliness, everything we need to live a life that is pleasing to him, everything we need to live a life that is satisfied because that's what God does, at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. In him we find our full satisfaction. Everything we need is in Jesus Christ. No other philosophy does that. All other philosophies are empty. Um, that, that verse, we are filled in him, reminds me of Ephesians chapter, uh, chapter 1, um, where it talks about um, what we have in Christ. Um, Ephesians 1 verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. We have been filled in him. We have been blessed with every spiritual blessing. There's nothing that we could be blessed with that we haven't been blessed with. And there's no blessing that we have that Christ cannot give us in its entirety because all the fullness of deity is in him. And because we are in him, we are filled with those things. And then, of course, Ephesians outlines those things for us. 
Um, he chose us to be holy and blameless. He predestined us for adoption. In him we have redemption. In him we have forgiveness. Um, in him he lavishes uh, on us wisdom and insight so that we know the mystery of his will. In him we've obtained an inheritance. In him we have obtained the a Holy Spirit, the guarantee of our inheritance. All of those things God has given to us. And we are going to trade those, Paul is saying, for these philosophies which capture us. That's the choice that's set before us. Now, the rest of this passage, and we won't be able to deal with it today, talk about how that happens. And interestingly enough, it speaks of the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ. See you, Bill. Yep. Um, and, and so the people who are denying the substitutionary uh, death of Jesus Christ, those theologians, by the way, theological fads come and go, right? They come and then before long, no one believes that anymore and they constantly change. So who knows, 10 years from now, maybe that fad will be over, but there'll be something else in its place. And the answer is keep looking back to Jesus Christ know Jesus Christ, know what we have in Jesus Christ, fix your eyes upon him, and those philosophies will not carry us away. So next week, um, it's going to talk about how that happens, and it's the substitutionary death of Christ, and I think we're going to have to stop here for today. So uh, any comments before we end? I know we've thrown out a lot of ideas today. Adrian's still puzzling over that one. Then you have to back it up and say, well, we're, we're killing an innocent lamb, then be cosmic you know, animal abuse. Well, I bet, you that's, I bet you that's not far behind it, right? Um, so it is, it is, I was thinking about something like this. You know, one of, the, one of the dangers of students going to seminary when they're young and the whole system is that creativity is a big deal. You have to come up with something new. <laughs> but, right, you write a doctoral thesis, you have to come up with something new. Now, that's the idea of a doctoral thesis. There, there's nothing new. <laughs> um, it, it's, all, it's all here. We're, we're, we, we're, um, it's, a, it's a tendency. I remember when I was a young teacher, that to me, a good lesson is something that I came up with something that no one had thought about before. So that they were intrigued and left thinking about that. And then I began to realize, no, that's not a good lesson. A good lesson is when you say what the scripture says, when you talk about what this says. So some of these young men are really intrigued by this. And that, um, it's, it's interesting, it's easy to say, you know, this makes people, gives me a name. Um, I'm, I'm now known because of that. So, but uh, I'm, I'm sure there's going to be a question. Why would, a, why would God have done that? There's people who I'm sure are horrified when they read the Old Testament, see that lambs were offered for the, for the sins of man. Right? I mean, I, I can't imagine that there's not people who are horrified, whereas that wouldn't have even occurred to us a generation ago. Tom.
either inform my conservative values or just my interpreting the scripture through my conservative bent. Uh, uh, and so we need to always, or often need to always keep watch over that. And maybe not so much in content, but in attitudes and stuff, you know, the way, the way Remaining poor in spirit and understanding our positions uh, before Christ and all that He's done for us, and remaining humble and and yet a servant of His in how we vote, and yet separating Christ's uh, um, sovereignty and His will is going to win out, and yet our uh, handling our our uh, responsibility that we've been given in our to vote and all that, you know, we can get all that confused and so that uh, we sound like the non-believers, like a, something that's not Christian. Yeah. And, and I think that's where, it's not in this passage, but the idea that we take every thought captive for Christ. And I think we've been, I, I think for myself, and I think that's where you're feeling, I think we've been lax in doing that. And we're actually seeing some of the fruit of that. That, again, to me, that idea that, you know, we've got this incredible system of government. If we just elect the right people, everything will be fine. Well, we do have an incredible system of government. We have very wise founding fathers, but, but you still need people who are committed to God. If, if not, then, then um, God's judgment eventually comes and you are at the mercy of those. The fact that we're worried about who's gonna be elected because the Supreme Court could be lost, uh, it shows the flaws in the system, right? It, it, it only works if you have good, good people there. And yet, I think in my mind, there's been a lot of almost deifying of the political system that we have and the founding fathers and, and so on. And I should have taken those thoughts for captive for Christ a long time ago. Sometimes God has to slap you upside the head, and I, I think that's kind of what's happening now. But, but we have to be careful because uh, it's always the ones now that you see and you go, okay, but what else is it that's affecting us? And that's why I brought up some of those other things. Just leave me alone, get the government off my back, and I'll be happy. No, you won't. No, you won't. You, you won't be satisfied. That only comes through Jesus Christ. Um, and it's not going to be by who we elect or by what job we have or any of that. It comes through finding our all in all in Jesus Christ. Kirk. Yeah, on the issue of politics. See what you did, Tom? Now you opened the door up here. But it's Go ahead. a theological question. His question is, who is sovereign? Who do you view as sovereign? If you say, okay, government is the source of our happiness. Government is the source of our liberty. Government is sovereign. Government will solve our problem. You're relying upon men. Yes. And men will always fail you because they're fallen men. And our founders set it up so we have limited government and we have rights, but based on rights from the Creator. So again, who is sovereign? God is sovereign. If you're going to rely on politics, you're saying the government's sovereign. But I think that the fallacy is that, okay, well, the individual can't be trusted either. The individual is not sovereign, it's not government. You know, there's three the God, <coughs> the individual, and there's the state. Yeah. What you really have here is. Our system is set up so that we have the pursuit of happiness. It's not that individuals will find happiness or that they're, they're even looking for happiness. They have the right to be miserable, okay? But the point is they have the right to pursue God according to you know, their relationship with God. It's just about liberty. 
Yeah. Which is exactly what we're talking about here. You know, both lead to freedom. You know, liberty is freedom, but as individuals, you're trusting in God. The state, you're always trusting in man. Yeah. Always. So, yeah. pretty easy Okay. Anything else before we're done? Looks like Rod wants to say one last thing. I just have a side note. Uh, you know, when you mentioned that Adrian Oscom would be serving our sentences in prison. Just mine. Uh, you get, you get well, to choose somebody else. I mine too, but I, I was not fearful of that because he'll take Bible study fellowship. In the okay, okay. <laughs> Whether they let her or not, that's the question. All right, let's, let's close in prayer.